On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. All righty, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, continuing our study of Ecclesiastes. I think this week we're in uh, part 10, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 12 in our meaningless life study as we seek to pour some meaning into our meaningless life. And today's sermon title is Climb the Ladder. Well, did you grow up in a game-playing home? Our family was like uh, play sports, kids outside all day on bikes playing wiffle ball and football and running all over the neighborhood and then come home at night, eat dinner and watch some television. Uh, Conversely, my wife Grace, the family that she grew up in, it was largely a game-playing home. So They didn't watch a lot of television. They had uh, three girls. We had three boys and two girls, a lot of activity at our place. Uh, Grace, anyways, grew up in a game-playing home. So they had a lot of board games, and they'd pull out the board games and play together. And my kids kind of picked that up. A lot of my kids like to play games, board games like their mom and with their mom. And even some of my kids have invented new games. They come up with different, clever, fun games they want to experiment on as a family. And I was thinking about it. Uh, A lot of adults today are playing a game in Western culture that isn't formalized. You don't really get a rule book or a way to keep score, but life really is for some that is a game I like to call Climb the Ladder. Uh, Climb the Ladder is a game where you're born on a particular rung and you look at the rungs above you and you do the best you can to climb from one rung to another. And the way uh, this uh, climb the ladder game works is you spend a lot of the time um, looking at the rung above you or the rungs above you. Uh, What car do they drive? What house do they live in? What clothes do they wear? What food do they eat? What social events do they enjoy? What experiences do they have? What places do they travel to? And then what you do is you look up the ladder at who's ever on the rung or rungs above you, you then look back down at your rung and all of a sudden you're a little unhappy, a little dissatisfied, a little frustrated. So what you do in the climb the ladder game, as you see those who are ahead of you, you try your best to climb up to the next rung on the ladder. And once you get there, you're still not happy, not satisfied, not joyful, not content. Why? Because As soon as you get to the rung that was above you, you realize, well, there's another rung above you. And now all of a sudden you start looking at what all the people have and are and do on the rung that is on top of you. And you think, well, I need to go up one more rung. And people spend their whole life playing this game, trying to get further and further and further up the ladder. Some people get way up the ladder. Some people take high risks trying to get to the next rung on the ladder and they fall broke and uh, come crashing off the ladder and and harm themselves and or their family. Uh, Other people seem to get all the way to the top of the climb the ladder game. These are the celebrities, the superheroes, the business leaders, the people who seem to have and do it all. And, And it just shocks the rest of us who are 
further down the ladder because as we look up the ladder, we think, well, they've won. They should be so happy and joyful. Beautiful spouse, lots of affluence, time to burn, glorious vacations, private jets, uh, lots of friends and fans and family. And, and a lot of times those people that we call celebrities up at the top of the ladder, they're miserable. Their whole life is about being criticized and stolen from and attacked. Everyone below them on the ladder trying to knock them off or take them down. Seems like everybody at every level of this climb the ladder game, every rung on the proverbial ladder is frustrated, unhappy, discontented. And I'll tell you what, discontent and envy, they go together like gas in a match and both are dangerous. But when you combine discontent and envy, there's an explosion that's deadly. The whole climb the ladder game, it's driven by discontent. Not looking at what you have and thanking God, but looking at what they had and then being envious of it and jealous of it and covetous of it. And discontent is what happens when we're not satisfied with the life that we have. And let me say this, discontent is not always a bad thing. For example, a married couple may feel discontent about the condition of their marriage. And because they're not as loving and close as they should be, that discontent compels them to work wholeheartedly on their friendship and to fix their marriage. So discontent can be a good thing. Maybe one day you wake up, you step on the scale, you realize, that ain't a good number. You're not happy with that. So you start eating right and exercising to fix that problem. I'm not saying that all discontent is sinful. There are things in life that we need to be frustrated by so that we can be motivated to make a change. But, but I'm talking about ungodly discontentedness, unholy discontentedness, unbiblical discontentedness. That kind of discontent happens when we compare how our life is into how we wish it was if we had someone else's life. Godly discontent is when we look at the fullness of the life that God has for us, and we realize that because of our sins or our laziness or our folly or whatever the case may be, something in our control, we're not living in the fullness of the destiny and the life that God has for us. So then we're discontented in a godly way and we want to grow and change and lean into God's grace and grow in God's wisdom and live the life that God intends for us. Ungodly discontent is when we look at the life that God has for us and we don't like it. We look at the life that someone else has and we're covetous, envious, and jealous of it. This kind of ungodly discontent um, it really is one that fuels a lot of uh, what James calls selfish ambition. I'll give you an example. Um, this kind of envy is what happens when we start to covet the life of someone else, and that's a life that God has not intended for us. So, for example, uh, talk about another kind of married couple. They may feel discontent about the condition of their marriage, but they then start coveting someone else's spouse. Oh, I wish I was married to them. I wish my spouse was like this. And that can lead toward emotional and or physical adultery. That's an ungodly discontent. It's not being grateful for what you have. And it starts then wondering if what God has given you is not in fact what you deserve or want or need. And let's just be honest. The age in which we live has more intense opportunity for discontent and envy than at any time in the history of the world. 
Every day we're bombarded all the way down to our phone with advertising seek to, seeking to make us discontented. That's the whole point of advertising and marketing, make us discontented so that we spend money. Every day we're bombarded on social media where people share with us everything from the house they live in to the clothes they buy, to the food they eat, uh, to the vacations they go on, to the friends they have, to the experiences they have, to the lovers they have. And just all day, we just get like a God's sick view into people's lives and we can't handle that much information. God can handle it. We can't. God can know everybody that every everything that everybody's doing and can handle it and we can't. And for us, it creates this discontent this jealousy, this envy, this unhealthy, unholy, unhappy striving. Trying to climb up that ladder. Boy, I wish I could have that, go there, be that, do that, know them. Well, in the history of the world, there's one guy who won the climb the ladder game better than anybody and everybody. His name's King Solomon. Richest, wisest, most powerful, respected man, arguably, in the history of the world, second only to Jesus Christ. He writes this book that we're in, Ecclesiastes, and he's writing it near the end of his life as he is all alone at the top of the climb the ladder game. When Jesus says uh, that uh, the queen of Sheba would come and ask him questions, King Solomon, that tells you. When the queen of Sheba travels to you to learn from you, you are definitely the winner of the climb the ladder game. And if Solomon were alive today, he would dominate social media. Photos of his thousand plus female entourage, his concubines and his wives, his massive palace, his gold stacked up in mountains large enough to ski down. Steve had everything he wanted and he envied no one. Yet, as the grand prize historic winner of the climb the ladder game, even King Solomon was discontented. As he writes Ecclesiastes, we find that even wealth externally and success externally and honor externally does not bring peace internally. Now, we're going to jump into it, but immediately as I'm setting this up, I know that some of you, you're just rolling your eyes, taking a deep sigh. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. That guy does not know what he's talking about. That guy, if I had his money, if I had his palace, if I had that many people available to sleep with every night, I'm sure that I would write a book talking about how awesome and amazing my life was. Well, dear friend, uh, that is uh, cynicism. Uh, G.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians of recent era, a wonderful guy. I've had the honor of meeting him, and God's given him a long life, and he has a brilliant mind, and he's done some wonderful Bible teaching. He wrote a little bit on his perspective of Ecclesiastes, talking about when he was young, he was very, very cynical. Are you cynical? As you hear about a guy like Ecclesiastes, do you think, that's crazy. As you hear about celebrities that try to kill themselves, you're like, really, you killed yourself in your multi-million dollar home filled with staff and lovers sitting in your Italian leather chair while someone cooked your favorite meal? You tried to kill yourself there? That's cynicism. Cynics, Packer says, quote, are people who have grown skeptical about the goodness of life and who look down on claims to sincerity, morality, and value. They dismiss such claims as hollow and criticize programs for making improvements. 
feeling disillusioned, discouraged and hurt by their experience of life, their pain pride forbids them to think that others might be wiser and doing better than they themselves have done. On the contrary, they see themselves as brave realists and everyone is self-deceived. Is that you? Mixed up teens sleep, slip easily into cynicism and Packer says, and this is what I was doing, I, I would add the same. Some of you are, you're cynics. If you're young, already have a tattoo, play guitar, smoke a cigarette, and uh, have any idea uh, about what is going on in uh, indie rock, you're probably at the front of the line, dear friend. Cynics. Cynics think that their eyes are open, everybody else's eyes are closed. They see things for what they are and others don't, that they're the brave realists. And so when they're cynical and critical of the experiences and articulations of others, they're just the voice and conscience of the disillusioned. Is that you? The only way to really get the most out of Solomon's instruction is to slay our inner cynic. So you know what? He won the climb the ladder game. Maybe he does know what he's talking about. And when Jesus says uh, that, you know, he's wise and that only Jesus Christ is wiser than Solomon, maybe Jesus knows what he's talking about. All right. For all of you that are hoping for some good news, we'll get there eventually. It's going to take a while for you cynics. Buckle up, cowboy. Here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He starts by telling us it ain't always great up the ladder. Here's how he says it. There is another serious tragedy, Solomon says, I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth. And if you're in the Western world, just so you know, historically and globally, you have great wealth. You might even be saying, man, I'm, I'm listening to this sermon on my phone. Congratulations, you've got a phone. Uh, give some people, God gives some people, he says, great wealth and honor. That's a reputation and everything they could ever want. And the truth is, it ain't so bad in the West. You got a fridge, it's got food in it. You're listening to this on your phone or your laptop or some piece of technology, everything you ever want. But then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. You been there? You get something and mm, not even really enjoy it? He says they die and someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy. Here's the bottom line, dear friend. We live in an age when prosperity is seen as always and only a good thing and a blessing from God. Conversely, adversity is often seen as a bad thing and possibly even a cursing from God. But as Ecclesiastes painfully, brutally, continually reminds us, prosperity is not always a good thing and adversity is not always a bad thing. We don't believe that, right? We don't believe that. But how many miserable celebrities are there above us on the ladder of success? Right, we follow them on social media, hear about them on tabloid television, talk about them, obsess over them, imitate them. And then we hear they're getting divorced. They're entering rehab. They're depressed or they were suicidal successfully or unsuccessfully trying to take their own life. It makes you wonder if being a normal person, living a normal life with some normal friends would not be a better option than an abnormal person living an abnormal life with some abnormal friends because sometimes that weight is just soul-crushing, life-taking, joy-sucking. Right? 
here's the guy at the top of the ladder and he's saying, I know it's not fun on your rung, but it ain't any better up here. Why do you keep trying so hard to get where I am? That, that's really helpful. That, that's actually very insightful. Maybe we don't need to get to the next rung or up to the top rung to really learn. Maybe the guy at the top yelling down the ladder has got some good insight for us all. He then goes on to teach uh, that no rung on the ladder guarantees contentment. I'll tell you what, man. This is a hard one for me to believe. I'm guessing it is for you as well. Because whatever level of the rung on the ladder that you're on, the, the myth is, man, if I could just get to the next rung, a little more money, next season of life, a little bigger house, a little nicer car, a little, little better job, a little better vacation, a little better health, drop a few pounds, make a few bucks, you know, have a few giggles, connect with a few friends. If I could just get to that next rung on the ladder, boy, then it'll be like Eden on earth. I'll have guaranteed contentment. He says, no, no rung on the ladder guarantees contentment. You see people going up and down the ladder all the time. The guys at the top are trying to climb back down and live a simplified life. And the guys at the bottom are trying to climb up and have a complexified life. Here's how he says it. Ecclesiastes 6, 3 through 6. A man might have a hundred children. Boy, Solomon's working on that. Uh, I love kids. That does seem like uh, <clears throat> a lot of birthday parties. A man might have a hundred children and live to be very old. Signs of blessing. But if he finds no satisfaction in life, right? Okay, you live to be a hundred and you hated 98 years. Well, that's not really a win. But if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to be born dead or stillborn, some translations will say. He goes on to say his birth would have been meaningless and he would have ended in darkness. He wouldn't have even had a name and he would have never seen the sun or known of its existence, yet he would have had more peace than in growing up to be an unhappy man. He might live a thousand years twice over, but still not find, here's our word, contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, what's the use? This guy is a stone-cold realist. Stone-cold realist. He starts asking some really intense, hard questions. So he brings it up. I'll bring it up. Have you ever stopped to ponder who might be at your funeral? Hmm. It's a morbid thought, but a clarifying one. After all that is your life, who will even care enough that you're gone to show up for an hour? That's basically the question that Solomon asks. All these people you know, will they even give an hour? All these people you've served, given to, taken care of, will they, will they even give an hour? Will they care? And if they do show up, what will they say? I'll tell you, one of the first funerals I ever preached, I think it actually might have been the first funeral I ever preached as a young pastor in his 20s. Did a lot of weddings, didn't do a lot of funerals, worked with a lot of young people, not a lot of old people, but I got invited to speak at a funeral. Wow. The guy who died, he came from poverty. He actually climbed up the ladder pretty far. He was successful, made a good living, running a division of a significant company. Um, right around retirement, I think perhaps even shortly after retirement, he died. His relatives were poor, uneducated, unsuccessful. In comparison, he did really well. I mean, he was born at the bottom rung of the ladder, and by the end, he was somewhere toward the top. Uh, the funeral was not large, uh, mainly friends, family, a couple co-workers. And so I started chatting with some of the guys that were uh, under his 
oversight management in this particular company. They were outside kind of having a cigarette and chatting. And so I engaged them and they didn't know I was the pastor yet. This was before the funeral. Uh, hadn't gotten up yet. They just thought I was some young guy in a suit. I said, oh, so you came here to pay your respects. I'm sorry for your loss. You know, I'm sure you miss them. No, that was kind of the answer from one of the guys. I said, okay, well, why are you here? And he kind of got curt with me and he looked at the coworkers and he said, we just came to make sure this guy was actually dead. Wow, not a real hallmark moment. I thought, this guy is not even getting a decent burial and there's nothing he can do about it. Not a lot of people showed up and those who did, they're not even really honoring him in any way and he can't do anything about it. That's the sober point that Solomon is making. Once we're gone, we don't even know who will show up or what will be said. Here's an old guy and you know, he's probably already picked out his coffin, Solomon. He's at the end of his life. The finish line's getting close. He's going to, I got a thousand women. I don't even know if they're going to show up for my funeral because I don't even know if any of them love me. And if they do, heaven forbid we have an open mic. It could just be rain on my parade. Let's just be honest. It's not just, you know, punk rockers and their parents having their midlife crisis that feel like this. But sometimes, truth be told, we find ourselves in a dark place, amen, where you look at life and you're like, is it, it, is it, is it even worth all the trouble? This job, this relationship, this lifestyle, is it even worth it? This church, this ministry, this suffering, this sickness, why am I fighting? Why am I trying to get through it? If we stay in that kind of dark place, we move from cynical to suicidal. But if we never dare ask that question about life and whether or not it's really worth living and all the hassle is in vain, we're probably living a shallow life absent of any meaningful reflection and maturation. Let me ask you, friend, just us hanging out. Are you in a dark place? Are you asking these kind of questions? Have you been in that dark place? You know, this happens when you stop working hard at your job for long enough to pull back and ask whether or not getting up on Monday and going back in is even worth it. Same is true for your dating relationship, your marriage, your health, your kids, your friends, your church. Why? Is it worth it? Is it a good return on investment? We tend to be driven by a concern for our family, our reputation, our joy, and our legacy. That's what Solomon's saying. But what if no matter how hard we try, those things never really come together or we get them together only to see them fall apart? And I worked hard to get that job and then I lost it. And I worked hard to get that marriage and then I lost it. And I worked hard to buy that house and then I lost it. And I worked hard to build that reputation. Then I lost it. I worked hard to get healthy and then I lost it. When you hit those points where it feels like I'm not getting up the ladder, I'm going down the ladder, or I fell off the ladder and the ladder conked me in the head, you ask, is it really worth it to continue to try and press forward up the ladder? Or am I just being silly trying to do the impossible? And if it's impossible to put life together and keep life together, then why not just end life altogether and get the straight over with? And this is where people who get into a dark, cynical place ultimately get into a suicidal place if they don't find a way out. Number one category of prescription medication in the U.S. is antidepressants. People don't like the rung of the ladder that they're on. They feel like they're sliding down the ladder 
or if they're up the ladder, they're very stressed to hold their place because somebody's trying to pull them down and take their spot on the ladder. When I was a kid, we used to play hide and seek. And uh, one of the kids in the neighborhood, uh, his house backed up to a large wooded area like a forest. And so as we got a little older, we started playing hide and seek in the woods, all of us boys. And that was kind of fun. A lot of days just running around, hiding from each other. And the winner gets a prize. And after a while, you know, all the hiding spots, you got to get a little creative. And then one day we decided, um, it was summertime, we should have gone home for dinner, but we decided, well, we'll come back after dinner. We'll play some more in the woods. And pretty soon it went from dusk to dark and we're running around the woods and it got pitch black, no lights. We're separated into small teams, couple of us here, a couple of us there, all trying to find a place to hide. But as it got pitch black, we didn't know exactly where we were. We kind of got lost in the woods, a little confused, young boys, a little scared, very turned around. See, during the day, we could see the pathways and our way around the woods, and we could look up and find our way out of the woods. But as the night got darker and we got deeper into the woods, we got ourselves lost. For a while, it was scary, but at least on my team, one of the kids knew the forest very, very well, and, uh, and he was able to lead us out, but only after we went down a few wrong paths. Where we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes is um, in the woods. It's a bit of a dangerous and dark place that we find ourselves in, and Solomon comes along, and what he's going to do now, he's going to say, you know what, if you're, if you're this cynical person with this despairing disposition, if you're frustrated, if you've asked the hard questions of life, if you're trying to figure out whether or not life's even worth continuing, right, if it feels like, man, my job, my marriage, my church, it's a bucket with no bottom, I keep pouring my energy in, and it doesn't get contained, it's just wasted, that's a dark place. That's kind of alone in the woods. That's lost. That's not knowing your way out. And so what Solomon does, he comes alongside of us in this emotional place. And he, he, he leads us out. And what he does previously, and we'll get there, friends, so hang with me. He, he shows us a few other paths. And he shows us how these paths don't get us out of the woods, out of that dark place into new life and a hopeful place and a joyful place and a life-giving place. And so in venturing down these paths, he's trying to show us, hey, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here. Let me explain to you why these don't work. So then when I invite you to follow me out of the dark woods, you'll actually follow me and not argue with me because I will prove to you that I've been down all these paths myself and I know that they're nothing but dead ends. First thing he says then is that discontent is not cured by money. Are you a contented or a discontented person? Are there areas and aspects in your life that you have ungodly discontent? The myth is often that those can be cured by money. And he says discontent is not cured by money. Uh, Ecclesiastes 6, 7. All people, he says, spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. Here's what he says. You work hard your whole life to sort of provide for your needs, and it doesn't matter. You never quite have enough. And, and this is the sad, cold, hard truth, right? Like there was a time in your life where you thought, if I could make 10% more, I'd be okay. You made 10% more, and you thought, well, if I could just get 10% more from that. And that continues the rest of your life. And we work to provide. And the opening pages of the Bible reveal to us that God worked. 
that, that God worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. And God created us in his image and likeness to work. And work is a good thing. And it can be an act of worship. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with work as a part of our life. But many things go wrong when work becomes the purpose of our life. The center of our life, not the aspect or an element of our life. Our identity can get so wrapped up in our work that work begins to overtake our life until there is little or no time or energy left for anyone or anything else. What Solomon is saying is that what often drives us to work more is the constant need to pay our bills and fill our fridge. But the problem is, it seems no matter how hard you work or how much you make, there is always a deficit and the temptation is there to work even more with the same failed result. Let's be honest. I don't know how old you are, or how much you make. But 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if someone would have told you, here's what you'll be making today, would you have thought, oh, I would be so content with that. That would be amazing. My life would be great. And now you have it, and it's not. Here's Solomon's big idea. And this guy has... This guy has so much wealth that silver became um, really without any value in his day. The only thing that was worth anything was gold and he had it all. But silver was so common that it, it didn't even have value. Here's the big idea. Working hard is a good thing, but does not always lead to a contented life. Making money is a good thing, but does not always lead to a contented life. That's why some of the hardest working and richest people are unhappy. Number two, he says, discontent is not cured by intellect. Sometimes we think, man, if I just studied hard, learned more, got smarter, maybe got a degree, got some coaching, started filling my mind with information, that would cause my life to go better and my discontent to fade. He asked this really hard question, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 8, uh, A, the first half of the verse. He asked this question, so, so are wise people really better off than fools? See, the Bible frequently compares and contrasts wise people and foolish people, especially in the wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, James, the kind of stuff we're looking at right now. Wise people live their lives according to God's word and God's ways. Foolish people live their lives according to quote-unquote worldly wisdom. And you would think that the wise people who live their lives in obedience to God would be better off than foolish people who live in rebellion against God. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the bad guys win, the fools prosper, and the evil emerge victorious. See, this ain't heaven. Not yet. To be sure, wisdom is better than folly, but it does not always lead to a contented life. Here's the secret. This is why some of the smartest people are unhappy. Solomon's a rich guy. He said, just because you're rich won't make you happy. Solomon's a smart guy. Just because you're smart won't make you happy. How about friendships? Maybe if I had more friends, then my life would be more happy. I'd have more contentment. Nope. Point number three, discontent is not cured by friendships. Second half of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 8, he asks another penetrating, provoking, probing question. Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? He's talking here about relationships. 
Right, and let's just say, this isn't an old book, this is an eternal book, so it's always timely because it's timeless. We tend to think, oh, if I had more money, I'd have more happiness. If I had more intellect, I'd have more happiness. If I had more friends, I'd have more happiness. How many people follow you on social media? If a bunch more did, would that make you feel better? Solomon says, probably not. Here's the big idea. Some people are winsome. Some of you are like that. The life of the party, an engaging personality, high social IQ. You are the Pied Piper. You are the cruise director. You are the extrovert. You are the life of the party. Me, not so much. I'm kind of an introvert, like my family. And uh, I'm good in a group, but one-on-one, I'm kind of an oddball. Or at least I can be. But for those of you that are the extroverts, the big personality, the life of the party, you know what it's like. These people get invited to parties, elected to offices. They never lack for friends. Other people, conversely, are worrisome. They're the party pooper with a grating personality and a low social IQ. They just never know how to say the right thing at the right time to make everybody feel odd and awkward. If you're like that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We've all been like that at certain points in times. But people with a low social IQ, they don't get invited to parties. They got to sneak in. They don't get elected. Nobody's voting for them. And when they're in a group, they kind of make everybody feel a little awkward. You got a friend like that? If you're in a group and you say, we don't have any friend like that, I hate to tell you, Jack, you're probably that friend. Anyways, as a general rule, that was a joke. You get what you pay for. This podcast is free. As a general rule, life is more enjoyable for people with social skills. But sometimes, the friends turn on them, the crowds abandon them. What Solomon is saying is it's better to have social skills than not have social skills. It's better to have friends than not have friends. It's better to know how to get along with people than not know how to get along with people. But in the end, being well-liked and networked does not always lead to a contented, joyful, happy, satisfying life. That's why some of the nicest people you'll ever meet are unhappy. They're discontented. Well, in hearing this, he's really taking us down these paths, right? In the darkness of the woods. How about money? Will that get us out? Nope. How about intellect? Will that get us out? Nope. How about friendships? Will that get us out? Nope. How about if we make a plan to get us out? Chapter six, verse nine. How many of you are planners or you wish you were a planner? You like your lists, you like your notes, you like your schedules and your budgets, and you like things to be in order, and we're just going to make a plan, and we're going to follow the plan, and we're going to march out of the woods, we're going to get out of this difficult, dark, devastating situation we find ourselves in, we're going to get out of the frustrating aspects and elements and experiences of our life, we're not going to live here and die in the woods dark and depressed and discouraged and despairing and despondent, we're going to get out, we're going to make change, we're going to move forward, and he says, mm, probably not. Discontent is not cured by planning, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. Here we go. He says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Here's what happens. We have a dream. We make a plan. The plan is to bring the dream into reality. Now, let me say this. Some of you planners, you're freaking out. The Bible, particularly in places such as Proverbs, speaks highly of planning. Jesus says, you know, 
when you put your life together, you kind of be an architect. You better have a plan and count the cost. Make sure you know what you're doing. I'm not against planning. The God of the Bible is not against planning. All right, God has a plan for your life. God has prepared in advance the good things for us to do and to walk in them. The Bible's clear. He's appointed good works for us uh, to walk in. Right? God has a plan. It's okay to have a plan. There's a godly, good, wise way to make a plan. Here's the problem with planning. The problem with planning is that when we're always dreaming for what we will have or do next, it creates a discontent with what we have and do today. Some of us are so future fixated that we're present negligent. Some of you, your life is like a lighthouse. You're always sending out vision into the future and you're overlooking the people standing right in front of you, the opportunities and experiences that are right in front of you. Dreaming and planning can get us so focused on the future that we never really enjoy the present. Have you been there? Some of you live in the past with regret. Some of you live in the future with hope, but many of us just forget to live in the present. And we, what happens for us planners, and I'm a, I'm a planner, I'm a visioner, I'm a dreamer. I got a lot of things that I see in the future that I'd like to make plans to bring to pass. But when we live under the myth that when we get whatever comes next, season of life, spouse, child, house, income level, job, you name it, just think, well, once I get there, Jack, Flip the switch, that's when my joy comes, it's right there. But either that future never comes, that dream never comes to pass, or it comes and we remain restless and yearning for more so that we're always dreaming and discontented, right? Let's say you're driving a car now. Did you have a dream to get it and you got it? No, you're just sort of bored with it. How about your spouse? You dreamed about them, got to be with them and now, we're not really satisfied with them. You thought, well, once I get that job, well, you got that job, and now you're just not really all that motivated by that job. Well, if I could just find that kind of church or that kind of friend or live in that kind of house or make that kind of money or go on that kind of vacation, or and you're like, I've been there, done there, got the T-shirt, not really fired up. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Discontent is not cured solely by planning. This is why some of the most driven and vision-oriented people are unhappy. You feel it? It's dark, friend. We're in the woods. Solomon says, mm, I know what you're thinking. Let's throw some money at it. Let's study it. Uh, let's get some friends to journey with us. Let's make a plan. In and of themselves, none of those things are bad, but they don't cure discontent. Two things do cure your discontent. Here's Solomon taking our hand and saying, okay, now that we've looked down the well-worn paths, let me get you out of the woods of discontent as night has fallen and it is dark. Number one, you can be content if you accept your destiny. I'll be honest with you. I wish I didn't have to tell you this because I struggle with it big time. I said I shared this with my wife last night and she burst out laughing because this is not something I'm particularly good at. I'll just be honest with you. But let's just both decide that we'll listen. So here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 6, 10 and 11. Everything has already been decided. 
See, the future is open to us, but it's closed to God. The future is something that we're awaiting to discover, but God sees beginning to end. Somebody asks, what's that like? I don't know. I got a three-pound fallen brain that went to a public school. I don't get all that. Here's what I do know. God's thoughts are not my thoughts, and God's ways aren't my ways. That's what the Bible says. Hear it again. Everything has already been decided. It's crazy. You ever recorded a television show and and then came back to watch it? And to you, you're experiencing it all in the moment. But the truth is, it's already over. How does about a sporting event? I'm a football fan and baseball fan. And when there's a big game and I can't watch it, I'll record it. And then I'll go back and I'll replay it. And it feels very fresh and new to me. But the truth is, it's already over and the decision has been made. And the verdict has been rendered. History is like that for God. He already knows the final score. Everything has been decided, Solomon says. It was known long ago what each person would be. Boy, they lied to us in school. You can be anything. No, you can't. I'd love to be six foot tall. Still hoping for a growth spurt. 45th birthday right around the corner. Doesn't seem like it's coming. It was known long ago what each person would be. Here's what he says. You ready? Sit down. Buckle up, buttercup. You ready? So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. There's no use arguing with God about your destiny. The more words you speak, he says, the less they mean. So what good are they? You can talk and argue all day. But God's in charge of our destiny. God's in charge of your destiny. God's in charge of my destiny. The key to becoming content at whatever rung on the ladder God has appointed for us is to accept our destiny. Think about it. Climb the ladder game. There's a rung that God has chosen for you to get to, to live on. Sometimes God's destiny is for you to go up the ladder and slide down. Sometimes it's to get stuck at a rung for a really long time and then go up. Sometimes it is to get to the top of the ladder and fall off. Let me explain this. Some theologies stress the loving and gracious goodness of God. Other theologies stress the sovereign control and power of God. The truth is God's a father. And as a father, he's both sovereign and good. You need to know this. If you think that God is only good, but he's not sovereign, well, then you're in control of your destiny. If you think that God is sovereign, but not good, he's in control of your destiny, but he's not very nice. God is in charge, but not like a dictator, and he's loving, but not like a jellyfish with no spine. God has a destiny for each of us. God has a destiny for you. God has a destiny for me. And that destiny includes our rung on the ladder. And what he's saying is this, by thanking God for whatever rung on the ladder we find ourselves on goes a long way. And rather than looking up at the person ahead of us in envy, it's good to look up and to thank God for his grace to them. And, and it's good for us to look down the ladder at the people that are below us, and they have some things that are harder and more difficult and be thankful for all that we have. This hit me last year. Um, didn't intend to share it, but I guess it just comes to mind as I'm sitting here home alone. 
we were in as a family easily the toughest season of our life. And some dear friends of ours that we love very much had a child that was just very uh, much in physical danger and needed an emergency surgery. And so they had to uh, rush this beautiful child that we love with all of our heart. Uh, feel like an uncle to this kid. I get just sort of choked up talking about it. Beautiful, wonderful little girl. And uh, man, she's spirit-filled and Jesus just radiates from this lovely young woman. And she got this bad health diagnosis and they had to rush her in for an emergency surgery just before Christmas. And uh, her parents stayed with us and didn't know how long that they would be with us because we didn't know how long. Well, first of all, there was a chance she could die. And then if she did recover, and praise be to God, she did, we didn't know how long she'd be in the hospital. And I tell you, it was just clarifying, like, my golly. Yeah, there were some things on the wrong of my ladder last Christmas that were difficult to navigate. But looking at my friends, just saying, I, I feel so blessed. I mean, I would take absolutely anything I was going through and would trade it in a heartbeat for the health of my kids. Came to me and said, well, your, your kids could lose their life and got to go in for surgery. You want that or what? Lose your job, lose your whatever. Like, hey, take whatever you want. Just please let my kids be okay. Let my wife be okay. Let the people I care most about be okay. You know, it sounds trite, you know, well, compare yourself to other people and find the areas to be grateful. But boy, it is true. So we just try to pull ourselves up, wrong on the ladder, wrong on the ladder, wrong on the ladder, look down and say, oh my gosh, they're going through that. They're enduring that. Gosh. I'm glad that my wife and I love each other and we're friends and we're together and our kids are healthy and we're all walking with Jesus and yeah, every rung of the ladder has its pains and its problems, but man, alive. By walking in the destiny God has for us, we're free from trying to be sovereign over our lives. We're free from trying to control every circumstance and outcome so that we can pull ourselves up another rung on the ladder. We're free to work our job, learn our lessons, enjoy our friends, make our plans. But in the end, we have to surrender to God's will. And if God's will ends up being different than ours, we have to accept it. And even if we fall a rung, we have to accept it. And if we fall all the way to the bottom of the ladder, we have to accept it. And if we go all the way to the top of the ladder, we have to accept that too. Because every level of the ladder, every rung, has its own pains and problems. And what Solomon is saying is that arguing with God is an exercise in futility. We need to remember God is good and he's sovereign. We can trust him. And even if he hands us a script that doesn't look like the one that we would have written, it's a better script. This is simple to say and a strain to do. And the truth is, if we're honest, most of us, most of the time, we want to write the script for our lives, hand it to God, and then have him execute for us without any edits or modifications. God, here's the ladder Here's the rung I want to be on. Here's what I want it to look like. And now, Lord, your job is to bless me. He says, don't argue with God about your destiny. God's a father and he loves you and he'll listen to you. But at the end of the day, like any dad, he's not going to take orders from you. So principle number one to get out of the woods of darkness, death, destruction, despair, discouragement. 
Number one, you can be content if you accept your destiny. Number two, you can be content if you trust God with your life and legacy. Ecclesiastes 6.12, in the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can be best spent? The truth is, we really think we know what to do with our life. Mm, maybe we're wrong. He says, our lives are like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? That's your legacy. Life moves fast. Before you know it, the finish line is a lot closer than the starting line. That's where Solomon is. He's an old man looking back saying, where did the time go? This all went real fast. The truth is, none of us knows what tomorrow holds. We're not sovereign. We don't know the future. And none of us truly has any real control over our legacy after we have left this world. We think we know how to best spend our days, but the truth is we could be wrong and God truly knows better than we. God sees the past, present, and future and everything in perfect detail from beginning to end. We don't. The truth is, if we consider our fate, the options are pretty simple. Who's in charge of our destiny? Satan, us, or God? Let's just go through the options. Do you want Satan in charge of your destiny? Me neither. How about you? Do you want yourself in charge of your destiny? Sometimes we think and feel that we do, but the truth is we don't. We're not as all-knowing as God. We're not as good as God. We're not as competent, capable as God. We're nothing like God. God's a lot better person to be in charge of our destiny than us. So what he's saying is God's God. Just accept that God is God, and that frees you up from trying to be God. Accept that God is sovereign, and then that frees you up to stop being sovereign. Accept the destiny that God has for you. And yeah, that might be a part-time job in a cubicle. I don't know. And, and, and let me say this. For me, this timeless world word rather is very timely. I, I'm, a guy, I'm a dreamer, visionary, planner, right? My life my vision, my dream pursued with great energy for 20 years, up the rung, up the rung, up the rung, up the ladder, up the ladder, up the ladder. I thought I knew what my destiny was. It's changed, to say the least, without getting into the post-game analysis for my season of life. Uh, this is not what I had in mind. It's just not. But, and this is a good word for me, and I hope it's helpful to you. Rather than arguing with God, I'm learning to accept my destiny and be thankful for my wrong on the ladder. I believe that God is good and he's sovereign. If he was only good but not sovereign, he wouldn't be any help. If he was sovereign and not good, he wouldn't be kind, loving, gracious, or helpful. I'm so glad that God loves me, and he has power. I'm so glad that God is a father who knows me and the future and everything, and he knows all that I don't know, and whatever he has for me, it is good for me. It's really a faith issue. I'm learning to accept my destiny, be thankful for my rung on the ladder, and here's what I've decided. I would rather not have what I want if God decides, that's not what he wants for me. If God says, son, that's not what I have for you. Say, father, that's what I want. Father says, son, that's not what I have for you. I say, all right, dad, you know better than me. You love me. I'm going to assume 
Not that you have something better for me, because God doesn't have to have something better for me, but that what you are not allowing me to have, it's to protect me. It's a silly story, but it just comes to mind as I'm sort of free-flowing here, sitting alone at a rental house. Some years ago, a guy went overseas in the church, and he brought back a two-handed sword. If you know anything about swords, there's a one-handed sword and a two-handed sword. Of course, he's a single guy. He brings back a two-handed sword. That's a big sword. That means you got to have two hands to swing it. You chop somebody's head off with this thing. I had very young sons at the time, like little boys. And this sword, I'm not even kidding you, was larger, taller than, than any of my sons. This is like a four-foot-high sword, and I got like two-foot-high son. He comes over to the house. He says, well, I brought something back for your sons. He pulls out this sword. This thing is, this thing is a... It's a kid kebab. That's what it is. If you if you want to run your kids through, you use this. And he hands it to my sons. Well, my sons immediately start jumping up and down like they're all about, you know, sword fighting at that age. And they have their little plastic swords. And all of a sudden, it's a real sword with a leather scabbard. And you can pull it out. And this thing is four feet long. And it glistens and shines in the sun. This thing is amazing, right? And I look at him. I say, uh, kids, there's no way you get to play with that sword. And my sons are like, oh, come on, Dad, it's amazing. This is what we've always wanted. This is what we've always dreamed for. This is what we've always hoped for. I mean, they had their moment. I'm like, look, I'm telling you, I'm your dad. I know this is your dream come true, right? You feel like the Lord Jesus just answered every bedtime prayer. Lord, send me a four-foot-tall, two-handed sword. But I knew for a fact, you know what? They'd have fun with it for a while, and then they would kill someone, like one another. This thing was sharp and deadly. And the truth is, there's a lot of things in life that we are just like kids, and we have this hope, this fantasy, this dream, this vision, this aspiration, and dad comes along and he takes it out of our hands. He says, I can't, you can't have that. But dad, you know, I'm telling you, trust me, what you want, it's going to hurt you. And I'm going to take it from you because I love you. Nothing in the Bible makes any sense apart from the Father heart of God. What Solomon here is saying is that you can be content if you trust God with your life and your legacy. You say, you know what? If the Father takes something out of my hand, I'm going to trust that my dad knew something about what that would do to me and it would harm me and he loves me and I don't need to know. I just need to trust my dad. I don't need to agree. I just need to trust my dad. See, my father's good and he knows what's good for me. So whatever rung he assigns me on, whatever ladder he has for me, whatever he puts in my hand or takes out of my hand, I'm learning and I'm not very good at this, but I'll Assume it's a good place for me to be thankful for what I have and what I get to do. What's up, buddy? I'll be done in a minute. Okay, I'll be right out. Almost time for me to go hang out with my kids. Looks like they're home from school, so i got to wrap this up. Rather than being envious of what I used to have or others have, uh, I can honestly say I'm, I'm, I'm growing in gratitude for both what I had and what others have without being envious of the past or their present. Um, this isn't easy. It's hard, um, 
It's deeply personal. It's intensely practical. And uh, real contentment gets tested whether we're down a rung, up a rung, or settle in for the long haul on the rung we're on. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Solomon's the guy on the top of the ladder. He's unhappy. You know what I have that he doesn't have? I have a wife who loves me. Before I jumped on to do this little recording to give you something to do with an hour of your week, thanks for tuning in. My wife came in and gave me a hug and a kiss and looked me in the eye. And We've been together 28 years coming up and been married for um, 23 of those, if my math is right. And she still looks at me with life in her eyes and a smile on her face. And she told me she loves me and she gave me a kiss and she prayed for me. Solomon didn't have that. He had a thousand women, but he didn't have one woman like that. He just heard the voice of my son. He's healthy. He walked in, wants to hang out with me. So we got to go do something together. There's a lot to be grateful for. The guy at the top of the ladder said, boy, it's, uh, it's not very not very joyful up here, not very happy up here, not very contented up here, because if you get somewhere and God's not there, it's not a good place to be, amen? If you get somewhere and God's not there, it's not a good place to be. And there's a lot to be thankful for, and the best things money cannot buy, like contentment and love and family and friends and a clear conscience. Well, let's end with Jesus, right? I'm teaching, so at some point we have to. Jesus is, of course, the greatest example of perfect contentment. Isn't that amazing? Jesus went from the veritable top rung. His ladder was all the way up in heaven. Jesus was seated on a throne, worshipped by angels. He left it all. He literally came down the ladder. Remember Jacob's ladder? Jesus is God coming down the ladder. Coming down the ladder. That's crazy. We're all trying to go up the ladder. What's God do? God comes down the ladder. That's amazing. We're all trying to climb up the ladder to a heavenly life. We're worshiped like kings and queens in a kingdom. And God comes down the ladder to be laid in a feeding trough by a poor teenage mom. First 30 years of his life, God works a job as a carpenter with his dad swinging a hammer. God never got a wife, never had a kid, didn't make a lot of money, as far as we could tell, never owned a home. And on occasion, he was homeless. God was content when he was broke, hated, despised, and homeless. God was even content when he was betrayed by a friend and died on a cross for his enemies. Yeah, Jesus wrestled it through, but he ultimately got to the place of contentment, submission to the Father's will. And we are all very thankful for the Lord Jesus and so glad that he was content enough to come down the ladder from glory to humility, from wealth to poverty, from hearing the angels just shout, uh, glory, 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 holy, 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 to hearing the crowds yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. A discontented Christian is not thinking or acting in a Christ-like way. We can never forget that if Jesus was like us, he'd never have gotten off his throne and come down the ladder. But we're glad that he did. He was contented enough to be in whatever circumstance or situation that the Father had appointed for his destiny. So Lord Jesus, we end by thanking you for your humility. We're thanking you for your generosity. We're thanking you for your contentedness and coming down the ladder. And, uh, and Lord Jesus, we ask for the Holy Spirit to help us join you with an attitude of contentment so that whatever our destiny might be, 
whatever rung on the ladder you've appointed for us and whatever changes may come on the rung we find ourselves on, that we would assume that it's part of our destiny, it's part of our mission, and it's part of the Father's plan for us as it was for you. We ask for this grace in Jesus' good name. Hey, I love you. Thanks for tuning in. Um, dogs run around, kids are home from school. I guess it's go time to uh, enjoy my blessing, and I'm very, very grateful and content for that.